Well, once again, we come to a very difficult passage of Scripture, just as we did and just as we will continue to do. 1 Samuel is not <clears throat> the easiest book uh, to work through, and, and it's very apropos that our series would be entitled Shattered because that's what we're going to see over and over again. But today we want to talk about the arena where lives can be shattered and one that hits so close to home, and that is the idea of shattered parenting. Uh, it doesn't take long for you as a parent to recognize that your motto as a parent is that of safety. I remember heading home with Noah uh, just being a day old and, and just being worried about every moment of his life. We would go in and to his crib and, and make sure he was breathing because he at times was so quiet. Uh, we would make sure that all the outlets were covered because we didn't want little fingers uh, to go places that could cause electrocution. We made sure that every door and every cupboard had a, uh, a childproof handle on it. We did everything in our power to make sure that wherever Noah went, no matter what Noah did, he would be protected in, in every way because that's what parents do. Our motto is safety, safety, safety. But as the days continue to go on, as they grow older, we teach them about what it means to cross the street, what it means to ride your bike, and we put helmets on them and elbow pads and knee pads, and we put a couple pillows on each side of the, the bike to make sure they never fall. And, and then they get older, and we talk about uh, the, the danger that comes with, with uh, strangers, the danger of, of drugs and, and peer pressure. As they continue to grow older, we talk about Internet safety and social media safety, uh, safety uh, in the sexual arena, safety when it comes to driving when you hand them the keys. Uh, the parental life is one continually given over to the issue uh, of safety. But one thing that is rare in our day are parents who teach their children uh, the safety that comes in a vibrant and healthy relationship with Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews tells us a very important truth, one that should grip the hearts of parents, and that is this very true statement, that it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. While it's important to keep your kids safe from household accidents, I want to remind you that it is far more important that we teach our children, train our children, model for our children the utter disaster that can befall an individual when they are out of step with God and his will and plan for their lives. We rarely think about the danger that can come when our children risk losing their souls. But that's what happens in our text today. We come to a man named Eli, a man by many accounts was a wonderful man, a man uh, who was respected as one of the high priests of, uh, of God's uh, priesthood. No doubt he had impacted lives. We know even in our first uh, part of the series that he had impacted the life of Hannah, had blessed her and had, had announced her that she no longer needed to cry, but that her petition and prayer had been heard by God, no doubt uh, encouraging this young woman. But now a chapter after Hannah has been in the temple, some time has passed, and we learn that Eli is an older man, and he's got now not young children, but now young men who are serving. And as we look at chapter 2, and the opening in verses 12 through 17, we begin to see the fault lines of Eli's parenting. You see, it takes some time. Some of the things that maybe we were lax in doing as, as uh, our children were babies, 
as they begin to grow older, we begin to see some of the areas where maybe we missed it as parents. We are told Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They've grown up, and now they are men who are described as dirty, rotten scoundrels. Eli, we would learn, would hear horror stories from people about what they did. No parent wants to hear that. Every time that someone comes up and says, hey, I want to tell you a story about what your kid did, there's a part of me that shrinks. Because I know that, that children, especially those that are named Badal, have a way of at times getting into trouble, knowing that people are going to see some of their deeds. But Eli, uh, we would learn, would fail to address many of these issues. And because of it, it would end in the death of his sons. Because they would learn once and for all a truth that is important. Young people will reap what they sow. Parents will do the same. If we fail to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, then we are failing our children where their safety matters most. So at the time I have left, I, I want to look at this. You know, we could look at parenting, and I could pull 100 different parenting books out, but I see six lessons in my first point and five lessons in my second point that will help children and parents alike to recognize the importance of what it means to live upright and godly lives. But if you're not a parent this morning, you may tune me out and say these things don't apply, but these things apply to every Christian in their personal life as well as applying them in the lives of those who are closest to you. So let's look at this. Uh, under two headings this morning. If we're going to keep our families safe, if we're going to keep our families from becoming shattered, parents, first of all, must be heavily involved in leading your children. It involves, begins by leading your children. We are given the job as parents to train our children in the way they should go. That's from the book of Proverbs. And the Proverbs says, so that when they grow old, they may not depart from that training. But let's remember right off the bat that that comes from the book of Proverbs, not the book of Promises. What that means is if you go about doing your best under the uh, leadership of the Holy Spirit to train your children in the, in the way that they should go, it is a generally true statement when applied that they will not depart from it. doesn't always mean the case. Some of you are heartbroken right now because you've done all that you can to raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and as they've grown older, they want nothing to do with it. And you say, wait a minute, I, I thought that was promise. No, it's a general proverb. But, wh but what does the uh, training and leading look like? We're going to look at Eli's life, and we're going to see some areas where I think he failed in being a good parent. And hopefully in these six areas, we will be able to be reminded and warned not to grow lax as Eli did. And so let's look at each of them very quickly this morning. We're told of the first one in verse 12. The first way we lead our, our children into a godly relationship is, number one, we, we commit upon them a desire for them to reach for a good reputation. To reach for a good reputation. Notice in verse 12, it, it begins that there was a man uh, named Eli, and that he had sons, two of them. And notice how he, they are described. They were worthless men. No parent wants to hear their children described in that way. Think about it for a moment. Hi, my name's Tim, and, and this is my wife, Amanda, and here are my three worthless children. Nobody wants to describe their children that way, but that is how the author describes Eli's two sons, literally good for nothing. 
Now, I want you to notice for a moment that it must have been an agreed-upon belief. The author does little to change the fact of what has been articulated. He offers no sweetener to the deal. He offers no disclaimer. It was said they were worthless men, or there were certain people who thought they were worthless men. No, he uh, just addresses it as if it is as true as can be. They were worthless men. Now, here's the idiocy of all of this situation, and the reason why I'm going to be so hard on Eli this morning Because as the high priest, the high priest was given the job of assigning priests to their priestly duties. And here's what we know of Eli. Eli could have not given his two sons the job of priests. What man, what priest would put upon uh, two men who are described as worthless the job of being the spiritual leaders of God's people? Why would he have permitted such a thing? Priests were supposed to be men who were above reproach, men who were viewed as spiritually mature in all matters. And the defining phrase for these so-called priests was worthless. But what does that mean for us as parents? When I talk about that you should be leading your children to reach, to to go after, to, to pursue A good reputation is to recognize that their name is something of great value. That once it's attained, it should be retained all the days of their life. Proverbs 22 verse 1 says the following. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. Parents, we must teach our children to be known not for their possessions, Not for their degrees, not for their positions of authority, but our children should be known as trustworthy men and women of integrity whose word is their bond. Listen, it's very difficult to to regain a good name when it's been lost. The story is told, a very historical story, of the pursuit of John Wilkes Booth after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. We know that John Wilkes Booth would jump from the presidential balcony in Ford's Theater down to the stage. He would yell some words uh, of tyranny and anger towards the Northerners and then would run off into a back alley not to be seen for a couple days. As he fell from the balcony onto the stage, he broke his leg. And in the process of uh, abating uh, police, we, we see that and we learn from the story that he would need to get his leg tended to. He would find the help that he needed in a Virginian a doctor named Samuel Mudd. Samuel Mudd, not knowing who John Wilkes Booth was, fixed his leg because he was given the job of the Hippocratic Oath to take care of those who were hurting. When it was found out that Samuel Mudd ha- had done this procedure on John Wilkes Booth, he was brought in as one of the conspirators who was a part of uh, the plot to kill the president. He would be found, he would be one of the only conspirators that would be found innocent after a whole process and investigation. Here's the problem. Samuel Mudd would never practice medicine again. The reason why is his name had become Mudd. That's where the phrase comes from. You see, his name had been dirtied 
even though he was innocent, he had lost that good name and he could never retain that name again. And because of it, his life would be uh, put into utter turmoil because his name was associated with something evil or something uh, wrong. You see, brothers and sisters, as we uh, minister to our children, remind them that their name, and I don't just mean their last name, but that when someone speaks about your children, they speak of them with respect and honor. That is a trustworthy man or woman. That is a person of integrity. You can count on them. No parent wants their child to be called worthless. And so we should make sure that our kids reach for a godly and good reputation. Number two. We need to have our children understand and, and relish in the fact that they are to revere God as the one and only. The text goes on and he says that they are worthless men. And it tells us a little bit more. It says they did not know the Lord in verse 12. They did not know the Lord as if being worthless wasn't bad enough. The most heartbreaking words that a parent could ever hear or could ever utter to another individual is that my children don't know the Lord. Even though their father, Eli, knew the Lord, that knowledge was not passed on to his sons. Listen to me. Some of us think, if I just put my kid at church each Sunday, he'll learn it there. Or if, if mom and dad just kind of talk about it here or there, if we, we say that certain things are important, they'll gain it. Or maybe they'll gain it through osmosis, or they'll gain it through the genetic code. Listen to me. You must be training your children unto godliness. While no parent is held responsible for their children's salvation, we are responsible to give them every opportunity to know who God is and to trust him with their lives. But how do they do that? How could Eli have done that with his children? He could have shown them a living example. And you and I can do likewise. Do your children see you trusting God? Do they see you talking with God? Do they see you studying His Word? Do they see you fellowshipping with His people? Do they see you worshiping Him on a daily basis? You see, when they see that, and when they hear that, they will recognize some things that are true, that a relationship with God is important. The Jewish people were reminded of this truth, that they were to teach and train their children the things of the Lord when they were lying down and when they were getting up, when they were at a table and when they were walking down the road, at all moments in time that they would know who God is and the place he should have in each of our lives. Now notice in verse 17, fast forward a little bit, we learn that it's not just that they needed to know about him but they needed to revere him. In verse 17, it says they treated the Lord with contempt. With contempt. That's a very sad commentary. It literally means to acknowledge that one is there. They knew God was there. They recognized God was there, but they showed a blatant disregard for his presence. Yeah, I know God's there, they would say, but I don't care. He's not important to me. Let me tell you that a byproduct that can come of just allowing your children to be a part of activities and not a part of a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ will create religion and acknowledgement that God is there, but no relationship with him. That they will hold God in contempt. 
Well, God's the one that kept me from this. Well, God's the one that kept me from that. My parents forced me to do this. My parents forced me to do that. I want to tell you I'm standing here today because I had flawed parents, but I had flawed but faithful parents who showed me the place that God was to have not only in my life, but the joy they had when he was a part of their life. We need to teach our children to revere God as the one and only. Notice in verses 13 through 17, we need to teach our children to renounce greed and revel in generosity. Uh, Now, let's look at verses 13 through 17. The custom of any priest or the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come. And while the meat was uh, boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Uh, This is what they did at Shiloh and all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the men who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man says, Let me burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, the servant would say, No, you must give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I want you to imagine for a moment, you're coming to worship this morning. And as you walk in, you see Pastor Keith, and Pastor Keith says to you, hey, give me your money. Open your wallets. God is wanting money today, and and I want you to give me my money. And and if you don't, I'm going to go get Tim. And Tim's going to come, and we're going to pull your wallet out of your pocket, and we're going to take it. That's exactly what Eli's sons were doing. They were the godfathers. They were the Tony Sopranos, the, uh, the uh, uh, gangsters, if you will, or mobsters of the first uh, uh, Israelites' worship at Shiloh. And what begins to happen is, is people were coming with a heartfelt desire to meet God. And the people that were supposed to help them in meeting God, the people that were supposed to facilitate their worship experience were coming and robbing them of what they had brought. They would bring a sacrifice, an animal. And the priests would come in and they they had an ability. They were given the right to take a portion of the offering. That was a part of the law of Moses. But they had taken that opportunity and changed it all together. They said, we're going to take what we want, when we want, how we want, and if you don't, we're going to beat you up. And so what would begin to happen is, is greed began to take over. And here's the thing, the men who were given the job of giving to the people of the Lord, ministering to the people of the Lord, serving the people of the Lord, were the ones taking. It was about them. It was about their greed. It was about their selfishness. And it's a reminder for us to teach our children, even though they may never be Levitical priests, that greed robs the soul. That it's always better for our children and for us as individuals to give than to receive, especially if that receiving involves sinful actions. One of the greatest highlights of of, of my uh, parenting life so far, and I'm only about 13 years into it, was when Noah was a little boy, we were at an olive garden, and we were eating, and Noah, Noah, as a little boy, struggled with attention deficit disorder, he got it from his mom, by the way, and, uh, and he's sitting there, and he's looking around, and, and he's talking, and looking, and, and just enjoying the, the dinner, 
And uh, all of a sudden, he starts looking sad, and he can't be any more than six or seven years of age. And he starts looking sad, and his mom says, what's wrong? Your, your demeanor has changed. What's, what's the problem? You don't like your food? He says, no, the food's great. He says, I'm sad. And we said, well, why? And he said, that lady, she's eating alone. And so he looks over to, uh, leans over and points to this lady, and it's an elderly woman, and she's sitting eating alone. I don't want to create any more worse picture. She seems fine and just enjoying a dinner by herself, but this six or seven-year-old kid doesn't think a person should eat by themselves. And he says, we should do something for the lady. I said, well, what do you want to do? He says, you should buy her dinner. So I said, okay. I said, how do you think we should do it? He says, you just go take money over to her and drive. I said, that's not how you do it in a restaurant. If you want to buy someone's dinner, I said, you got to just ask the, the waitress that's, that's tending to her uh, that you want to just take care of the, the bill. So that's what we do. And Noah's all excited. She's going to be so happy. But she can't know. And I mean, Noah's being so loud, she had to have known. And he's all excited. This is going to be great. I mean, to give, and he didn't have to pay a penny for it. It's wonderful. It's always great to give someone else's money. But what transpires is the woman becomes so persistent that she wants to know who paid for the meal. The young waitress points over to our table. And, and the woman comes over, and she says, you don't know what an encouragement that was. She said, my son was supposed to meet me for dinner. And she says, this is the third time now he has stood me up. You see, she, she said, I used to live in the city, but my, my son said it was too far for him to travel, so I moved out closer to him because I was told I would see him more, but I don't see him any more than I did when I was in the city. And she, I said, well, it was my son who, who wanted to buy you dinner. She says, this little boy cares more about me than my own son does. And I remember sitting there, and you guys are all going to go hug Noah after this. He's not going to know what happened. But I remember, man, what joy that brought. Now, that's the only good thing we've had happen in the Badal family. So if you think there's a whole bunch of stuff, we just, we just sit on that and just we're just, that's our one good story. So if you think we have a picture-perfect family, if you know the Badals, you know that is not true. But, but man, the joy that that brought. And, and what I want to teach you is we live in a world of absolute greed. It's all about what we get. Let's teach our children to show the love of Christ by teaching them what it means to give. And, and I'm going to tell you something. How do they learn that? By you modeling it. By you showing them that you revel in giving to others. That your money is not yours, but it's the Lord's. And that you're freely giving of your time, your talent, and your treasures to other people so that others may be impacted by it. It will change the way they look at their lives and it will bring them listen to me incredible joy because it is always better to give than to receive notice another principle that we see from Eli's life verse 22 we learn that the story gets even worse in verse 22 Eli we are told is a very old man and he keeps hearing from other people all the things that are going on that his sons are a part of and then they describe more problems. That, that when people, when women would come to offer their sacrifices to the Lord, when they, these women would come and serve at the temple, what would these scoundrels do? They would see it as an opportunity to flirt, make advancements, and then have relations with these women. Here their job was to reach 
uh, them and to minister to them as ones who led in worship and they are sleeping with the women around the temple. It couldn't get any worse. Eli's son's making advancements instead of helping people draw closer to God. The anger of God must have been severe as they practice such deeds. What would make them think that this was acceptable? Where was the clear teaching by Eli that this was wrong? Where was the lesson upon lesson of the importance of being sexually pure? How vitally important is it for us as parents and even grandparents to be teaching our children a sexual ethic that honors God? To endorse, again, modeling the joy of the sexual activity that is done within the bonds of marriage and the danger of that sexual activity outside of that arena. We need to, as parents, teach our children the tangible ramifications that involve both the heart and body, but also remind them that sex outside of marriage is an affront to God. It dishonors our body, it dishonors God, and it reduces our relationship with other people as simply animal instinct. We must teach our children not to play fast and loose with our bodies. When these men should have been fleeing sexual immorality, they were feasting upon it. And so let's be clear. Let's be clear to our children and young people what it means so that we may spare our children the sorrow and the pain that come from sexual immorality. And to train our children what it means to honor God with their bodies. Another lesson that we can learn is this. In verses 22 through 25, Eli is now speaking to his children, to his two sons. And he says in verse 23, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if uh, someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But what's their response? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was God's will to put them to death. The, se- the next thing that we need to see is that we need to help our children. We need to lead our children to receive good counsel. After hearing from others the shenanigans of his two sinful sons, Eli goes and he talks with them, but they would not listen to the voice of their father. Now let me ask you, why might that have been? Well, we could, we could think for a moment that maybe Eli's private life was different than his public life. And maybe the sons had every right to not listen to their father because maybe they saw their father as a hypocrite. We don't know. There's nothing in here that says that Eli was a hypocrite in any way. He seemingly was an upstanding priest who just failed at being a very good parent. But what we do know is that when they are told things that would be good for them, everything Eli says would be good for them to hear, they would not listen. Parents, we must teach our children to listen. Not only to you, but to those who are in authority. I've told each of my sons this in times of their own rebellion, that they have two choices in life, that they can make a decision to to listen to me, or in the country that they live in, they will have men and women in the law enforcement that will teach them. 
And the thing that I've got going for for me with them is I've told them I love them. Policemen and, and law enforcement, they have a job to do. Their job is not to love people in that moment, but to enact justice. And we need to help our children recognize that there is good counsel to be had. The book of Proverbs, again, tells us that we are to make wisdom our kinsmen. And so we need to help our children to recognize what godly wisdom is. And and where does it begin? It doesn't begin by them, first of all, listening to you. It begins, first of all, by them listening to God and His Word. And so how much, parents, are you teaching and training your children in the Scriptures? How does a young man keep his way pure? By by meditating on the word of God day and night. By memorizing it. By by hiding God's word in in our hearts. And so we need to help our children recognize and know some of these stories, these difficult stories of where people that said they had a relationship with God went haywire in their walks and lives and the trouble and turmoil that came as a result. Let them hear stories of you where you went against godly wisdom and the things that happened. Let them understand at times that what may seem right to a man or a woman may be God's best. We need to help them in that way. Finally, this story reminds us that we must lead our children to repent of their sins. To repent of their sins. Nowhere in the text do we see any repentance on their part. Let me say this, I'm speculating. Had they repented, had they bowed the knee and said, God, we are sorry. God, we have wronged you. God, we will do all that we must to show you our our, uh, sin and to do all that we can to show you that we are sorry for it and will change our ways. Might they have died? We don't know. But here's what I do know. Even when God has put forth judgment in the lives of people, he has relented when repentance has come. Repentance could have saved Eli's son's lives. But sadly, they didn't turn back to God. And they would die for their sin. We must teach our children that God is holy and that God does not condone sin in his children. But as we learned this morning at communion, that God is faithful when we confess our sins to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So how do we teach this? When your children do wrong, even against other human beings, teach them what it means to repent, what it means to go and and make right, what it means to own up over their sin. Don't, Don't make excuses for them when your child blows it. Let them own it. Don't gloss over it. Let them experience godly sorrow that leads them to repentance. Here are six things. Six things that we should be leading our children. Are they exhaustive lists? No, but we're only dealing with a couple verses in the Bible. How fruitful is the word of God in the arena of parenting? There's much for us to do, but we must never think, if I do these six things, it will be a magic formula. We must humbly plead before God to lead us and direct us so that we may be godly parents. So what does that lead to next? It leads to then us loving our children. Loving our children. It's hard to think that any parent wouldn't love their children, but loving a child doesn't mean that 
child gets what they want, or they let them uh, set the terms. Loving your child may mean your child may hate you at times. And at times, that's okay. My parents loved me, and there were times I absolutely despised being in that home. You think they learned? Nope. I did. I've learned a lot as I've grown older. The love that they showed, even when I thought they were trying to make my life difficult, really what they were doing was trying to save me from a myriad of pains and sorrows. Eli is very similar to many parents today. They think loving their children means letting the children set the rules for the family, but that can never be. And so what are we to do? If you're going to love your children, again, here's another list, another list of things to do, and hopefully these are resonating with with you this morning. It it means remaining connected to them, remaining connected to them. It seems as if Eli is an absentee father. I was amazed to learn that through my study, you would think that Eli, when he's hearing of these reports, is in a different area code. We are told that, that he hears from different people, many different people, of all the things that, that Eli's sons are doing, as if he's somewhere else and unable to see it firsthand. But I want you to know that throughout this entire time, Eli is living in the same town that his children are, the city of Shiloh. Now, I can't imagine that that, that city was all that big that Eli wouldn't have seen firsthand what was going on in his son's lives. They're right there. And he doesn't see these things, that he has to hear them from other people. It it gives me the idea that, that Eli is busy doing his own things, and the only way he knows what's going on in his children's lives is that he has to hear it from someone else. And I get that there will be times where parents, even the best of them, will hear of their children doing something outside of their presence that they'll have to learn about. But he gets all of his information from others. He's disconnected. I get he was busy. I get he was serving the Lord. I get that he had a lot of irons in the fire. But, but here's something we must remember. Don't be an Eli. Remain connected with your kids even as they grow older. My, my uh, middle son Joshua once asked his grandfather, he says, I saw you in the neighborhood. What were you doing? And my father said, I'm checking in on your dad, making sure he's loving your mom and taking care of you boys. He says, you do that with dad? He says, yeah, he's still my son. And when I heard that, I, I kind of laughed that off, but I said, you know what? God bless my dad. He's remained connected. He hasn't said, well, my parenting's done. Tim's a grown man. He's going to do what he wants. My dad is actively involved in my life because he says, number one, he's important to me. Number two, he's going to need help from me. He's going to need wisdom from me as he fathers his own family, as he ministers to his own wife, and and he remains utterly connected. And so we as parents cannot get so busy, cannot allow the pushing back of teenagers that tell us everything is fine. How was school? Fine. Dig deeper than that. Dig deeper into their lives. Pray that God would allow you to have ways to engage with your children so that you may be connected with them. Connect with them in prayer. Pray with them. Talk with them. If you haven't done it, start it today. It may be awkward, yes, at the beginning, but it will get easier as you go on. Remain connected to your kids. Number two, show concern for them. How do you love them? You show concern for them. Once again, nowhere in the text do we see that Eli is concerned with his children. 
He's worried about what other people are saying. He says some veiled comments about God's judgment, but there's never a moment in the text where he says with deep pain, I love you boys. You're my flesh and blood. I raised you. And the way you're living is not going to go well for you. I do not want to lose my sons. Turn. You're dishonoring God. Turn. You're sinning against his holy ways. Turn. Nowhere does he ever show a fatherly concern. No words of help. No, maybe, hey, you're in too deep. Let me help you out. No no words of guidance. Just you're on your own. Stop producing such bad press for me and our name. Our children must know without a shadow of a doubt that we love them. And while we may be angry with them at times, disappointed with them, that they are important to us. And that they are to know that we are there to help them in their times of need. Another principle that we see is that we need to choose God as first and foremost. This is the one of the greatest importance. Eli's problem doesn't come up until verse 29. Eli, we are seen, we we will find out, is seen as a bad father by the most important individual. Not the neighbors, not the family, but by God himself. In verse 29, God says to him that you honor your sons above me. What an indictment. Oh, the sin of too many American Christians. We worship our children more than we do our God. How do we do this? Our joy is found in our kids' grades, our kids' performances in the arts and athletics. We're willing to get up at the crack of dawn and drive our children to this event or that event. And we'll spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on their activities and toys. But when we comes to God, we don't have the time. We don't have the money. We've got nothing. We invest all that time and energy on their activities and are absent when it comes to doing the Lord's work. The greatest truth you and I can learn of being the best parent is you and I will only be the best parents we can be when we are the best followers of Jesus Christ. Parenting begins with your walk with God and will rise and fall on that relationship over and over again. Are you choosing your children or are you choosing God? Eli chose his kids and it ended in disaster. Challenge them spiritually. Amidst all the sin, Eli never reminds them what he has taught them. Harkening back to the days of infancy and the lessons they learned. You remember we talked about this, boys? This is what God was talking about. Notice in the text, there's nowhere his rebuke that calls them out of the mess that they've made. You and I must challenge our children to grow as believers, to become mature. Eli ceased at some point to do this. And because of it, it cost, I'm sorry, because of it, it they coasted farther and farther away from God until one day they just didn't care anymore. So what do you do? When you see your children down that path, you give them consequences. You give them consequences. Eli, your boys are sleeping around with women when they should be taking sacrifices and leading in the worship. What are you going to do? I'll go have a talk with them. Eli, your, your, your boys are a bunch of gangsters when it comes to the offerings of God. What are you going to do with them? Well, I'll have a talk with them. Listen, Eli is the chief priest and, and head priest could have brought down the hammer. Listen, boys, you're done. No more being priest for you. You've disqualified yourself from that. 
Here's the consequence. You no longer are going to prey on people ever again. I will see fit that that never happens again. Had he done that, he may have saved his children's lives. But he doesn't. He just says it's no good. The Bible says that we spare the rod, we will spoil the child, and it will cost us dearly in the end. Well, I have my views on discipline that may differ from yours. When your child does wrong, teach them the right way and correct them with measures that will cause them to cease and desist the wrong behavior. Do it. It will save their life. So much to pull from this. I could have come up with seven more things, but knew we had the barn back to fill them. So let me just finish up with just some quick things. Again, another list. So sermon of list today. What can we pull from this text this morning? An ugly text of a relationship that could have gone far better had Eli been a little more connected to the spiritual upbringing of his children. Number one, principle number one I want you to walk away from, God is deeply concerned about the condition of the family he surrounds. Fathers, your number one priority is to raise your children in an atmosphere that honors God, teaches them about him every day. Providing for them, number two, making sure they have fun, number 373. Your number one job is to be a priest unto them who draws them closer to God in their relationship. And if you're not doing it, that's what Village Bible Church is here to help you do. Let's teach you. Let's train you. Maybe you didn't see that modeled in your life. Well, that's the job of elders to help show you what mature fathering looks like. You need to be concerned about the spiritual condition of your family. And if you're not, you have then have no idea what may be coming along the way. Scary thoughts in light of the scripture we've read this morning. Number two, a parent's godliness. A parent's godliness doesn't guarantee spiritual children. Listen, you may have done everything right. God bless you for it. But it hasn't changed anything. And what you do in those moments is you just release your children into the hands of God and say, I did everything. Maybe I wasn't perfect, but I did everything to the best of my ability. And Lord, I give my children to you. We don't see that with Eli. Eli doesn't plead on behalf of his children and say, you know what, Lord, I know I messed up. You know I failed in some ways, but, but Lord, I pray that you would do something in my children's life that, that would affect change, that would affect some, some good works in them so they might see you. He doesn't do any of that. And so we need to recognize maybe you're doing the best job you can and maybe you've, you're, you're living a godly life. You're showing that example. You're modeling it to them. And it hasn't changed. Recognize there's no guarantee that because you're a spiritual individual, your children will be. Next one, God deserves the right to place the blame for sin. God does some pretty, from a human standpoint, heinous things. As you fast forward, and we'll see this as we get into next week, in one day, this is what transpires. Eli learns his two sons died. Eli learns that his daughter-in-law, the wife of one of the sons, will die in childbirth. Eli will learn all of this, will become so distraught, which is prophesied by the man of God in our text, he'll become so distraught that he'll fall over and he'll break his neck. 
in one day, four individuals will lose their lives. And I want you to recognize that God is completely right in doing so because God does all things well, even the things that from a human standpoint we don't think are fair. So maybe today God is putting the blame on you, the parent. Take it. Use it as an opportunity for repentance. Maybe today he's saying, you know what? The blame is on you. I, I did some things as I worked through this. I, I recognize as a teenager, I made my parents' life miserable at times. Are there things that maybe they could own up for? Sure, they weren't perfect parents. Neither am I, neither are you. And so they've got some things they've got to wrestle with with God. But I know the place that I had, and maybe some teenagers are in this service, and they've got some work to do because they're sitting there saying, you know what, I'm the one to blame. It's my attitude, it's my actions that are causing the turmoil in the family. And I need to bow my knees to Jesus in repentance because I am bringing upon this family not only a dishonored name, but calamity coming in the future. God deserves the right to judge, and he will when he seems and sees it right. Which then leads to one other important truth, and that is rebellion can bring forth terrible repercussions. This is a reminder that when we sin, it can bring forth terrible consequences. My brother, older brother Chris, was an incredibly rebellious son. I remember as a younger son, a younger brother, watching my father do all that he could to try to stop my brother from sinning. And my brother would have nothing to do with it, nothing. He would fight my dad. There were times in our garage where, where my father would literally have to grab my brother and say, you're not going out again. This isn't going to happen, not under my roof. And my brother, who was bigger than my dad, would say, I'm out of here. You can't tell me what to do. And, and, and as a younger sibling, seeing that and, and trying to wrestle with that. And then my brother would die in a car accident. Only so much less than a year after some of those experiences happened. But he got right with God. And he confessed his sin. And, and after his death, we, we were made aware of a video that came out at a, at a church camp conference that he spoke and gave his testimony. And weeks, this is weeks before his death, this 16-year-old kid says this, I had an accident not too long ago. And this is what I learned, young people, he was saying to his peers about the accident. God was warning me that he does not allow his children to rebel against their parents. He says it's a command that comes with a promise. You rebel against mom and dad, and you will not live long on this earth. You may think I am a legalist. You may think that I am a fundamentalist. I don't care what you think. My family believes the reason why my brother died at the age of 16 is he rebelled against mom and dad. He rebelled. Now, God was gracious. My brother died falling asleep at the wheel of a car. And his testimony was able to be used in great ways. But let me tell you something, the Bible doesn't put commands in there just to say, hey, we just got to fill the space. God says when you want your life to go well with you, don't rebel against mom or dad. What a reminder for us young people to not, or to recognize that rebellion brings forth terrible repercussions. Will it mean death for you? Probably not. Maybe not. I don't know. But it does at times. And again, God's the one who chooses. What a message. It's painful. 
But here's the great thing. Even in the Old Testament, we see one final truth, and I'll close. God is gracious even when we are guilty. At the end, I hope you see this, at the end of the text, it's as if God says, hey, there's hope at the end of the, of the tunnel. There's light there. In verse 35, listen to what he says, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. What's there? Many believe that this is a prophecy that Samuel, all the parts of the scripture that I skipped over uh, to, to look at this uh, terrible parenting that was going on, this, this Samuel who grew in the presence of the Lord in verse 21, this Samuel in verse 26 who continued to grow in the stature and in the favor with the Lord and also with man, that it was a partly a fulfillment of that prophecy that Samuel would be the one who would carry on the name of the priesthood. But even greater than that, scholars believe that this is an inference to Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ was going to come. And in our shattered and broken lives, Jesus was going to come and he was going to make all things new. Jesus was going to come and he was going to intercede on our behalf. Jesus was going to come and he was going to bring fathers back to their children and children back to their parents. It is Jesus who will do it. And so a reminder for all of us this morning, whether parent or child or somewhere in between, Jesus is the answer to our shattered family lives. And when we give our lives to him, he will make things new. He will change our circumstances. And he will allow us to see the good even in times of suffering. Shattered. When life goes to pieces, Jesus is the answer. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And, and again, Lord, I thank you for the, the patience of your, your people. Lord, I, I thank you that they would, would be willing to sit and, and listen to what your word has to say. There's much to chew on in this sermon. There's much for us to apply. But I pray, Lord, that it would be a, a litmus test, a, a checklist of, of seeing, are, are we honoring you as we parent? Are we honoring you as we are raised in a, in a home? Lord, I pray for each family, that each family represented here would be a family that would honor you. And I know there have been mistakes made, but your grace is sufficient. I know wrongs have been done, but your grace is sufficient. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would minister to us now by your spirit. Encourage our hearts, challenge us, so that we may not live shattered lives, but that by the grace of Jesus Christ, we may be put back together. That's what we long for. That's what we have come here searching for. And we're thank thankful that you promise that to all those who will humble themselves and draw near to you. We love you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.